Today's episode of Found Down is brought to you by Unwound Retreats. Unwound Retreats offers fun events and travel experiences for nurses locally and internationally. Founded by me, Nicole Johnson, ICU nurse and host of the Found Down podcast, I provide opportunities for nurses to practice self-care, learn, and travel together. These last two years have been brutal in healthcare, and why not give yourself the gift to unwind, learn, and grow? Previous guests have loved the experiences, especially because you can just show up and know that everything will be taken care of. Unwound Retreats is offering exciting and luxurious retreats in Morocco and Mexico. Go over to unwoundretreats.com and sign up to get on the email list so you can find out more. Hey there, this is Nicole, and welcome to the Found Podcast. I am saying hello from Seattle, from the Snowmageddon, this Valentine's Day, President's Day weekend. Hope you all are staying safe and warm out there. I have a couple announcements. One is, I am now a continuing education provider, and I'm offering continuing education credits at my next nurse's retreat. That's March 3rd, and it's from 9 a.m. to 11.30 with the wonderful Des Wood We're going to do an hour and a half of learning stress reduction modalities, and then we're going to practice some rad yoga. If you want to sign up for that, go to Found On Podcast, and there's a link to Unwound Retreats, so you can sign up there. Okay, now for my amazing announcement. Found Down Podcast has its first sponsor. Nicole Kupchik, CNS educator and author, is offering the Found Down listeners 20% off all of her online classes, Zoom classes, as well as her educational books. Use the coupon code FOUNDDOWN20, that's lowercase FOUNDDOWN20, to earn 20% off all of her products. Go to NicoleKupchikConsulting.com. Also, her website is linked on every page of my podcast podcast website, founddownpodcast.com. I personally am digging into the cardiac bootcamp course, and I am so stoked to be brushing up on my cardiac skills. And I'm also going to get CEs. Obviously, we as nurses, we need continuing ed for a license, but it's a great way to empower ourselves and learn and grow and stay current. So if you want to take advantage of this super awesome deal, go to NicoleCupchickConsulting.com and use the coupon code FOUNDDOWN20, that's lowercase FOUNDDOWN2020, in the checkout. All right, that's it. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Found Down Podcast. This is a podcast of untold nursing stories that are sometimes hilarious, dark, insane, and anything in between. As a warning, this show is rated E and is mature in content. It often deals with the reality of life and death and how we as nurses intersect with that on a regular basis. If we laugh, it's not out of disrespect. We love what we do and have every intention of continuing to do so. With that, enjoy the show. Well, hello and welcome to the Found Down Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Johnson, and today I'm so excited because I have an old colleague with us on the show today. Her name is Leah Buck. She is an organ donation coordinator. Is that right? Did I just say that wrong? Yes. That's right. Okay. No, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she is coming to us from Spokane, Washington. Today, I hope to talk about what is organ donation, like what are the differences? What, well, basically, what what is organ donation? Why is it so important? 
And what's really amazing about it and what's obviously hard about it, I mean, it's it's kind of a heavy topic and it's a topic that is like near and dear to my heart. And um, this is just a great opportunity to learn about all things organ donation. So Leah, thanks so much for being on the show today. Before we get into anything, how are you? How are you doing today? Well, thanks so much for having me, Nicole. Like I was saying earlier, it's so fun to be on the show. I listened to it during my commute to my hospitals that I work in, and it's fun to to connect with you on this platform. So thanks for having me. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And just an Um, audio note, I'll say that Leah's a new mom, so you might hear her baby. (laughs) Her baby's just going down for a nap right now, so... Anyway, congratulations on uh, becoming a new mother. How, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. How are you? No, you're good. How was life? I'm good. I mean, that plays into it perfectly because, um, yeah, I, I think I'm really good. My family's healthy. Everyone's good. But it definitely has been a challenging year plus now, um, navigating being pregnant through a pandemic and then also bringing a little one into the pandemic has been challenging. I guess the perks have been that there's no like obligation to take your baby to all these places or to see all these people. Um, but it's definitely scary. And um, fortunately, my midwives had the foresight to restrict my travel while I was pregnant, especially as we learn more about how COVID affects women who are pregnant. Um, And then navigating whether or not to get vaccinated while breastfeeding and all that sort of thing. So it's been a challenge, but um, I'm grateful for everyone's health. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to take little Miss Ellie to see friends and family in 2021, hopefully. So now, yes. (laughs) Uh, or have you gotten vaccinated yet? I mean, or you, I mean, obviously people, it's a personal choice, right? If you're going to breastfeed and get vaccinated, but I was just wondering about your family. Have you guys gotten vaccinated? And I forget yeah, if, I, if Nate's in healthcare or not. Yeah. So I just got my second dose of the Moderna vaccine a couple oh, days right. ago. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so super grateful for that. And it definitely was, a, um, I guess, a more complicated decision to decide to get the vaccine while breastfeeding. There's just no real data out there, or there wasn't initially when I first was making plans to get it. Um, but ultimately, I'm getting, I got it with the hopes that antibodies can be passed to her and would help keep her safe before she can get the vaccine. So, um, and the research that I did read and the studies that I did read, I felt really comfortable following that guidance. And I spoke to her pediatrician and all those things. So I I didn't just decide to get it without backing it with the science. So I felt really good about it. And, but yeah, he, my husband works from home solely from home, even before the pandemic started. (laughs) So um, he's, and you know, he's in his mid thirties. So he's on the very bottom of any kind of vaccine list, unfortunately, but (laughs) Well, at least you're giving your... He'll get it eventually. Yes. Yeah. Same with my husband. He's no sp- no spring chicken, but um, he's not on <laughs> any list. So he'll be at the bottom. Right. Well, that's cool. Right. You're passing your antibodies. Go antibodies. That's so Yay, cool. Yay, go antibodies. <laughs> um, so let's give into organ donation. First of all, what is organ donation? It's like, I know there are some lay people that listen out there, but... um. 
Why, what is it and like, why is it so important? Yeah, so I I pulled up a couple like numbers, I guess, to kind of help illustrate how important it is. Um, So current up-to-date stats so that there's over 100,000 adults and children on the United States waiting list. And that's, you know, a pretty significant number. And it, while we see, you know, trending stories on social media about these incredible people who've donated their organs and then loved ones can listen to their heart or listen to them breathe or whatever. It really is very rare for organ donation actually occur because it has to be under such like perfect circumstances for lack of a better description. But essentially someone has to die in a hospital to be an organ donor. You can't and you have to be under really controlled circumstances. And the most important thing for, especially for nurses to realize and physicians is that organ donation can only occur if you as a bedside nurse or as a physician have done absolutely everything you can to save someone. So we come in when their families have decided to withdraw life support or um, there's just no chance of a meaningful neurological recovery. And so it really is like we're so dependent on our hospital partners, but really we're coming in when there is no chance for any other outcome. Um, you know, the, the patients are going to die regardless. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important to remember. And, and yeah, that it is so rare and so many people out there need a life-saving organ and there's not enough organs to go around. So it's, it really is um, such a rare opportunity and being able to facilitate that is incredibly meaningful. Yeah. It's like you will probably, there's so much to talk about, but it's like you, when there is no hope for those families of those loved ones of those patients, organ donation can offer this ray of hope and this silver lining that maybe their loved one didn't have to, to die in vain, right? I think that, that yeah. is something that is one of the most beautiful things about about the work that, you know, you do and that, you know, anytime that I've been a part of organ donation um, stories or, you know, at in the hospital, I think that's just something that is super meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. It's a legacy that the their loved ones can carry on. And like years later, there's the opportunity sometimes for families to connect and share stories about, you know, the, the person who passed away and then the lives that they've impacted. And yeah, it's just incredibly meaningful. So for example, let's just, uh, uh, you know, talk for a second. So one patient potentially when there is no other option of like only, you know, if they're, if they're going to die because they've had brain death or they're going to die because they've had multi-organ failure or whatever it is that they cannot recover from that person, how many lives can they actually save potentially? Yeah, that's a great question. So under absolute perfect circumstances, one donor can save up to eight lives. And that's, that's organ transplant. And then as a tissue donor, someone can save up to, or not save, but improve the lives of 
over 125 people. That's just one person. So that's a lot of a lot of impact. <laughs> I think for folks out there, it's probably pretty clear what you know organs. You've got your heart, lung, you know. Uh, so I'm like totally blanking on your heart, your lung, you've got your liver, your kidneys, your pancreas. But like for tissue donation, what does that look like? I think a lot of times people don't think about what that what that looks like and what the how that can impact patients' lives. Like what are what are yeah, the tissues so- or yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, you're good. So we from an organ donation standpoint, we think of tissue as life enhancing. So that could be anywhere like from skin grafts to bone grafts to corneas. They also can recover nerves to help folks regain function. There's, I mean, those are the major ones. And I'll be the first person to admit that tissue is not my, my strong area. <laughs> but um, we do work really closely with them and try and facilitate that as a team. And um, yeah, it's pretty incredible what they can recover to help uh, folks regain function. And some of the, the most amazing stories from burn victims and thinking about how, um, you know, just that kind of an impact well, it's not necessarily saving someone's life, but it can significantly improve their quality of life. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to a burn victim, it can also save their life too. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Wow. I just got full body goosebumps thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So can I ask you about your role and like what, what you do? What is like your normal sort of role? Yeah, so my background is critical care, and that's where I was first exposed to the organ donation process because I I would say most organ donors are ICU patients. And my role is to, first off, is to evaluate for potential. So we get a referral in from the hospital. So say you're taking care of a patient and they, their family or the healthcare team is discussing withdrawal of life support, or they've had a severe neurological injury um, that's resulting in either declaration of brain death or just no meaningful neurological recovery. So you would call in this referral, and then we do a, a health history review pretty extensively, looking through their EMR, et cetera, and we determine whether or not the patient would be suitable. And little tidbit, I guess, is just um, when you are thinking of a patient and referring them, just it's important not to make the decision to rule out a patient before you call us, meaning that we're looking in so in depth into each patient that what may look as a rule out for you as the bedside nurse um, can actually still have some potential for organ donation. Yeah, so we, absolutely. It starts with... <laughs> oh, I was going to say, you have like that... No, you're fine. 16... 16- I don't know, someone might be like, oh, yeah, I got the 65-year-old or 70-year-old, you know, that, like, has whatever going on, and they're, they're, there's no way that they're going to be a right. better, or they're, whatever it is, like, uh, yeah, it's, no, yeah, it's not for us to decide. You guys are the experts. Right, exactly, and so it's, it is surprising sometimes, because I'll have conversations with people, and they're like, are you, you would want organs from this person? It's like, well, <laughs> someone might, I mean, if they're attached to dialysis four days a week, you know, or if they just have such a 
crappy quality of life, yeah, they would take maybe some marginal organs to at least maybe bridge that or, you know, just improve their quality of life for a little bit of time, you know, so there's always that potential. Um, so yeah, we, we dive in with a good review of the patient and then we will come on site and meet with you and the um, providers and kind of make a plan for, for speaking to the family about whether or not they would want their loved one to be an organ donor or not. And then, I mean, I'm kind of, you know, I'm very, this is very much a lengthy process and doesn't happen yeah. quite like this. Right, right, right. <laughs> but right. let's say, <laughs> but let's say a family, you know, is supportive of organ donation and we move forward. My role then shifts to more of a, a clinical aspect where I'm making clinical decisions to improve the quality of the organs that we're evaluating for transplant. And so we start, you know, we order medications, we order tests like CTs or echoes or things like that um, to evaluate the organs. And then once we've gotten all that data available, fine-tuned, I guess, as best as possible, then I start communicating with transplant centers to help find matches for those organs. And then once we've found recipients and can we can all agree on a time, which that's a whole nother <laughs> layer, if you can imagine <laughs> um, getting surgeons to agree on one time, you know, that's, yeah, that's fun. Um, <laughs> and get the, everyone on the same page, then we go, we schedule time for a surgery and it's one surgery and we work with families to um, pick a time that can also work with them. And then we go to the operating room and then I shift to more of a, um, uh, it's like the surgeons that are scrubbed in now it's up to them, right. To safely recover these organs. And I'm in the background facilitating airplanes or ambulances and that sort of thing to come get the organs. And then they go off to their respective transplant centers and save a life. So <laughs> I, that is an that is an insane amount of work just and also that takes it like you said it takes a ton of time just a ton of time to figure out when surgeons can you know get get together because you basically have to have the thoracic surgeons the heart surgeons the you know like the liver surgeon you know you have to have all these people in the in their whatever operating room at the same time i and I'll, I mean, I'm just thinking about the, all the varieties of what, what it is you do, the clinic, I mean, the evaluation, the clinical piece, the, um, I mean, it's gotta be quite emotional too, you know, as you, cause you're not, you're, when you go into a hospital, you could be there for three days. I mean, or maybe longer, you know, like you're right. Isn't that cause I mean, I, yeah, we, uh, you know, I'm on, a, I'm on the, you know, I see a nurse side of that. And so I'm there with the, the patients, but like we see you guys there for a number of days. And a lot of times it's like, okay, we're going to try for a donation tomorrow. No, it's like the next day it's, you know, we're the next day. And so you, there's just so much to balance and juggle. And what is, gosh, I would say, what is the part you like the most? About, out of all of that. I mean, it's so, it sounds like a very satisfying 
role that you have. But what do you like the most, you think? Yeah, I think there's two parts that I really like. The first part is meeting with families. And while that is incredibly challenging and often very like heartbreaking, um, you know, when you bring up the idea of someone's loved one being able to save the lives of other people, oftentimes that brings, like you mentioned, this this level of hope to this devastating and tragic story that's often the case for us and being able to offer them something really meaningful out of the loss of their loved one is pretty powerful. And um, I mean, I can think of, you know, so many instances, but I would say the most powerful would be when we speak to um, parents of little ones. Um, Because if you think about the, like, children who are on transplant lists, they can only be saved by other children. And while that is incredibly heartbreaking, I, I just, now that especially being a parent myself now, thinking about what it would take parent to say yes to organ donation to help save the life of another one, the courage and the, uh, I, don't, I don't even know if I can really put it into words, it's just incredibly powerful to see these parents decide that that's what they want for their little one is to save the life of, of another person's child. And they often say in that conversation, how they don't want another family to have to go through what they're going through mm. in that instance of saying, oh, it's heavy. It is <laughs> of heavy. saying goodbye to their, their child, but then knowing that they can, you know, save the life of someone else so so incredibly brave (laughs) it feels so brave for the yeah those families and you know i mean obviously crazy things happen accidents happen random weird just bad luck you know um with our your own pathophysiology whatever just random awfulness happens um Oh my God, that is so heavy. What? Oh, so there's that. Oh, yeah. There's, right. There's that part of it. There's that. And then I absolutely, I still love this. And I love this from the very first case that I've been on. But we, for a, for a liver to leave an OR to go to a transplant center, I'm often handing a box to a paramedic who will take it in their ambulance and then drive it either to an airport or drive it to the transplant center. And I love the look on these paramedics faces when you hand them a box that says liver for transplant. And they're like, they're so stoked to be helping us do this. And, you know, of course we ask them like, please go lights and sirens up the highway. And it's like, they're just driving this box, but they're literally driving this life up to a transplant center. And it is just so fun to like ask them to do this and see them taking off with this liver. It's like, it's still so fun to me. Like, here you go. Oh, it's so <laughs> go great. Save a life. They're like, yes, yeah. I want to be a part of this mission because yes, I mean, there are oftentimes, again, we're in a lot of us, we're dealing with such tragic shit, right? So it's such, right. it's every, I feel like everybody involved feels so good when they're working mm-hmm. on these organ donation cases. I mean, Obviously, it can be really sad 
um, and tragic, but it's, that is so cool. That is so cool. I'm never going to think about ambulances going lights and sirens. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> know. <They laughs> yeah, might. you never know. <laughs> I mean, they could have a heart in there too, right? Or the heart's flown. Oh, yeah. Could be, well, yeah. They, yeah. Um, livers, they'll go by themselves, but hearts and lungs always go with a team. But yeah, it could still be a team with, with those organs. So mm. you never know what's cruising by you, <laughs> causing Cute. the traffic delay. I know. <laughs> Go, liver, go. Um, yes. Can you... Okay, so this... I think I just want to clarify something. The the whole organization process within the United States and probably within the world, it's... There's like a... The re, there's like a regulatory body involved with this, right? Like, because yes. we never want any patient or to think that we are treating them or behaving, you know, I might do this wrong. I might say this incorrectly or, or not do it as verbose as you might, but since, but like we have to make sure those lines are very clean. Um, right. Because it's organization is regulated. And then also we would never want our patients and families to think that we were providing substandard care because we want their organs, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, and I think we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but again, like for someone to be an organ donor, you've had to do absolutely everything you can to save their life. You've resuscitated them. Most organ donors have had a significant or prolonged like CPR period, you know, a resuscitation period. Oftentimes, you know, paramedics in the field have done, you know, upwards of 30 plus minutes until ROSC, our return of spontaneous circulation. And I mean, that's what leads to someone trying for so long. That's what often, you know, causes the, the brain injury, right? Because they're not getting the oxygen that they need. But regardless, someone has tried for a really long time to save their life. And just like in the hospital, when someone's moving to comfort care, withdrawal of life support, like you guys have done absolutely everything you can. And then that's the next step. There is nothing else. So again, super important to remember that. Um, and then the other piece is that as, an, as a coordinator for an organ donation team, we really, um, we really like to focus on creating a line between the healthcare team and us. We want families and to know that we are separate from the hospital and the nurses and the physicians taking care of them, that we don't, um, we're not involved in any form of their treatment. We don't call them up and say, Hey, like, you know, maybe you shouldn't do this or whatever. Like we are there in the instance that there is nothing more that we can do. And with regards to speaking to families, we again want to create a very separate line so that folks don't feel like, well, you know, well, Nicole was my nurse for the last two days and now she's here encouraging my, you know, loved one to be an organ donor. There is that conflict of interest that can get real fuzzy. And so we just really work hard with our nurses and everyone to just try and keep that as separate as possible, um, just so that there is not any feelings like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we always tell, I mean, nurses and I mean, everybody that I work with, it's like, don't 
under any circumstance, don't bring up organ donation. It's not our job. It's not our role. It's, it's the, you know, organ donation organization. That's their job. That's your role. That's your role. So, um, that's why we, yeah, I just wanted to make sure we touched on that because, um, you know, always, I mean, the story never starts without the patient. Right. And so we always have to, um, you know, respect and honor those patients and, and do as, as providers do the best and nurses, I'm saying nurse, including us and the providers, but do whatever it is we can, right. To make sure that they have the best chance of survival. And if we don't, it's not our job to bring up organ donation. It's, it's, but it's our job to refer. So yes, (laughs) yes, it is our job to refer. And actually that's something that is also isn't it's isn't there yeah, a regulatory, that's regulated by but, cms yeah, yeah right the center for medicaid right yep um yep. yeah so they i mean i guess it's, it's an expectation there's certain criteria as nurses and providers to you know if you have someone on a ventilator who has loss of three or more reflex brainstem reflexes and What's the other one? Not and possibly bringing up comfort care, like yeah. Did yeah. I say those? Those are the big ones. Yeah, yeah no, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, you you want to think about referring, or if you're if you're you know you've had someone in the ICU for a while and like you all of a sudden they're like yeah we're gonna switch them to comfort care or end of life conversations. Those goals of care conversations should trigger us, trigger us yes. as providers to give the or the organization comp not company organizations a call and do what's called a referral and that's when you guys get looped in and um that's one of my it's just gonna sound really shitty but it's one of my favorite things to do um because (laughs) i mean it's great but it's one of my favorite things to do because sometimes as you know we get patients who are crashing and burning and blah 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 and everyone's in this swirl of like trying to save their life but a lot of times those patients are so sick like they could you know the window is can be really Mm -hmm. narrow and so we always try to you know make those referrals so that you know an opportunity isn't missed so a potential life could be saved yeah yeah earlier is definitely better but yeah it's definitely a fine line and navigating that can be challenging but um yeah all those things that's exactly when you should call and it is hard because i mean i remember working in the icu and it's really hard to transition your brain from thinking do everything 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 and then wait oh okay we're not going to make it now we should start shifting towards thinking about the possibility of organ donation and this person helping someone else that shift is really challenging and i talk to i work so closely with icu nurses all the time and that's like one of the first things I say to them is acknowledging like how challenging shifting your, your mindset from doing everything you can to save someone to now being involved with the, with the OPO or the order procurement organization. It's really hard to shift that mindset and yeah, it's challenging, but keeping us just kind of tucked away in your brain. And when you see those things happening or those discussions coming your way, then looping us in earlier and, 
I know like at least feedback that we get often is that, you know, we, we do call and we take time away from your patient care and some of our team members call more often than others. And <laughs> it can be a lot. And I remember that also from being bedside. Um, but just know that we're just really walking that fine line of when it would be appropriate to speak to families, you know, in a really challenging time. And we're just, we're not there at the bedside with you guys. And you're the ones that have the rapport with families. And it's just that important that we get a chance to kind of be looped in with what's going on and try and make the best plan possible. But mm-hmm. it's a fine line for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we just have to offer each other grace and yeah. know that we're all just trying to do our best. And some of these things can be, at least I'm speaking from the bedside perspective, sometimes you can just delegate this. You can delegate it to your charger. Mm-hmm. So you can, you know, or have someone else like, hey, maybe I'm totally knees deep in whatever patient care with this crazy sick patient. Can you talk to, you know, whoever right. for a minute? So, yeah. Um. I want to go back to talking about the patients themselves and when let's say they do become the, there's a potential for them to donate and then you get the OR all set up. Do, do the surgeons, do you, do people take a moment to honor like the, the patient before they do the recovery of organs? Yeah. it. And I believe that this is a nationwide practice, but I can speak to my organization in particular that we do take, um, we call it a moment of honor or it's also like a moment of uh, silence in some cases, but um, there, we oftentimes speak to families about this beforehand and ask them if they want to um, share with us, you know, anything that they would want the transplant surgeons to know about them on a personal level, what their interests were, what their hobbies were, you know, any love notes from their families. And then right before it's, it takes place when we do the timeout as we would for any other surgical procedure where you do a, a timeout for safety in an operating room. And then after we've done, done that, we, we do the moment of honor. And I like to have my bedside ICU nurses read this because it kind of brings it back to, you know, why we do this and um, that connection that they have um, with families and the, the patient themselves. So we read this moment of honor and it's, it's an acknowledgement of the incredible gift that the donor is giving to recipients, the lives that they're going to change. And then just sharing again about the donor um, more than, you know, the person or they will, you know, they're no longer there right? We're only doing organ recovery on patients who are deceased. That's, <laughs> That's true. important right. to know. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, let, yeah. Let's, let's flush that out a little bit in a minute. Sorry. Keep going. Yeah. 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 So we just, we always take that time to, to have that moment of, of honor for those patients um, and recognize just the magnitude of what they're doing. And, you know, I mean, I, I go to, so many of these recoveries, but it's so important each time to take that moment of pause. And we have all the surgeons pause what they're doing. Everyone in the room has to pause. And um, I just, I, yeah, it's an incredibly meaningful moment. And it means a lot to families to know that we're 
sharing these things. And I've had families who they create playlists that they want us to play. And sometimes I can think of several donors that we've listened to some pretty explicit um, rap in the OR. <laughs> can, you, um, can you give me an example of what type of rap or like, if you can remember? Oh, I mean, anything head? from like, from like Snoop Dogg to new rap that I'm not familiar with, uh, but all kinds of awesome stuff That's or awesome. photos of, um, photos of the donors and their friends and family. We tape them on the wall or tape them on the IV poles. And, you know, we do whatever we can to kind of bring the person into the room. And some surgeons don't appreciate that, but I could really care less because it's all about the donor and their families. So Right. And the, um, nobody would be yeah. there if they, if we no. didn't get to that place. No, no exactly. surgeon would be in that room. Yeah. So yeah, we can listen to whatever music that they're, family wanted us to listen to and we can look at their face as we're going about this procedure and yeah yeah because it's all about them there are two ways that you can become an organ donor right two like two paths can you talk about yes. those paths and and you have to be technically dead so yes that's very important um so the first is when a patient has been declared brain dead so their brain has actually died. Um, there's no gray area with that whatsoever. They've, there's a clinical exam that physicians can do. Um, and that determines whether or not there's any neurological function. So the brain has actually died. The patient is legally dead at that time, because without your brain, obviously you are no longer a person. Right. Your heart could still be beating. Your yeah, but, heart could still be beating, but this gets really confusing for for yes. people. For me, even it feels really weird. Like you're like, right. how is there, you know, a patient in the bed with their heart still beating, they're oxygenating or whatever, making urine, right. all this stuff. But you're, but but you have to just remember that time of death is when they've been declared brain dead. So right. Be, uh, and the only reason that someone's heart is still beating and they're still breathing is because they're being supported by mechanical ventilation. So if right. your brain dies and you're not in a hospital setting, you're not in an ICU, your heart would stop beating and that would be the end. So organ donors, when they've been declared brain dead, can continue to do so because of the artificial support in an ICU. Um, and we, you know, we give medications and everything to keep everything as healthy as possible in that situation. Then the other pathway is donation after cardiac death or donation after circulatory death. And this process looks a little different in the sense that while they may have a neurological injury, it's not a devastating neurological injury in the sense that their brain is no longer functioning completely. Mm. So how that works is um, a family has decided to withdraw life support and we time that withdrawal with the healthcare team, with the family, and with our teams. And you actually terminally extubate or move to comfort care. You move the breathing tube and you wait for that person's heart to stop. And then once their heart is stopped, they are declared dead. And then we can go in for organ recovery. And to kind of reinforce that process, we do we essentially declare someone twice in that. Oh, there's my dog. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
guard dog Wilson, um, where we remove the breathing tube and wait for the, the donor's heart to stop. They, the nurse, the physician, whomever listens to their heart. And then if they declare them, we actually start a five minute timer and we actually declare them again, five minutes later. So we absolutely make sure that that patient is not no longer alive before the organ recovery starts. So very important, two different pathways, but um, yeah, very important to emphasize that. Well, I'm, we are just about to wrap this up, but I have one question for you and that is, um, if people want to become an organ donor, like what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I mean, the easiest way is after you've been waiting in the DMV for an hour to just <laughs> let them know that you'd like to be an organ donor. <laughs> um, but you can also go online and register as well. Um, and then you can even like um, be a little bit more specific on your online registry. Um, you can edit your DMV registry online as well. Um, you can actually like be specific about what you'd want to donate or whatever if you felt so inclined to do so. Um, but yeah, I mean, over 100 million people are registered in the United States, which is incredible. Um, but you don't have to be registered to be an organ donor. If your family feels that, that would align with the type of person that you were in, in your life, you can, um, they can make that decision at that time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I There's so many people that need life-saving organs and um, one of the reasons I got into organ donation was um, my grandfather was a type one diabetic for, oh man, most of his life. He was diagnosed as a teenager um, and he received kidney transplant that gave us 10 more years with him. He also received corneas, which allowed him to see his great grandchildren more clearly and just really improved his quality of life. And I don't know, I would say that if there's an opportunity to help other people, if you're not going to be here anymore, then it's such an amazing thing, amazing gift to give to other families. So yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty powerful. It's, it's incredible, but it takes everyone, you know, in the hospital to make it happen. And we couldn't do what we do without the ICU nurses and providers that do such incredible and such hard work every day. So yeah. Well, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. yeah. You, um, and what you all do is just amazing. Amazing. Oh my gosh. Well, any last closing thoughts for the show? Oh, I'd just like to give a shout out to all my nurses that I've worked with over the years that have gotten me to this point. I mean, I loved working with you and that was by far my, I know I listened to Mandy's episode not that long ago and she mentioned how much she loved working on 6SA and that was by far, I mean, even I love where I work now, but I'm not afraid to say that I loved working there more than I've loved working anywhere else. So you guys are an incredible group of people and been definitely thinking about you all during this time and how amazing you all are. And yeah, I miss you guys. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we miss you too. We miss you too. Hopefully our paths will cross again soon yeah um thank you so much for spending some time with me today um and as always stay safe and stay sane and we'll see you on the next one
Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave an honest review on whatever platform you are listening. Also, feel free to share this with your nursing colleagues. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at founddownpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send in any stories. Just make sure they're HIPAA compliant. Also, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at founddownpodcast. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you.